Hi, welcome back to Escape Leaving Hell Behind. In this podcast, we talk with people who have left an overbearing religion or cult behind. Hi, we are back again today. I am here with my guest. I'll let her introduce herself and what religion she left and tell her story. Hello. Thanks so much for having me on. This is so fun. My name is Stephanie Miller. I was born and raised Mormon, pioneer stock. Family was in Utah, from Utah, all that stuff. And I left about a year and a half ago. So yeah, about a year and a half ago. I think it's a pretty typical story. I don't know that it's very unique in a lot of ways. I started having issues with LGBTQ um, issues and and it could see the inequality with women and the priesthood and all that stuff. And that's what kind of inevitably led me. That was like the beginning of the end. But it was something that I never, I mean, I was really in as far as anybody could be in, right? Like I had some pretty strong, like I said, like pioneer stock. My grandpa was a state patriarch in Utah and my family was all born and raised in Utah. Really Brigham Young was one of my relatives somewhere, not Brigham Young, Harley Pratt, that's who it is. So I always prided myself on the fact that we came from the early stages and how great that was and how lucky I was to be a part of this, to be born into this religion. I thought to myself a million times as I served a mission in California, how could I possibly be any luckier to be born into the gospel and the true church? And that was something that I sort of held on to for a long time. I served a mission in Southern California, Carlsbad, and worked really hard to be as good of a missionary as I could be. And then came home and thought the next step is to get married and have children. And I didn't for, I I got home from my mission when I was in 2004. So I was 23, turning 24 that year. So I thought I was like, perfect age right you get home and like I was a little bit on the older side still for like Mormons but I'm also tall I'm loud I'm big and I was not what Mormon men wanted so I dated a little bit um and really found a lot of it was really sad for me for I mean it's hard to be single anyway for a lot of reasons but I just felt like I was not fitting the mold. So as long as I read my scriptures and prayed and did everything that I had to do or could do, I could find someone who was willing to overlook this appearance that I thought was so detrimental to my salvation. Like I I was not like a small petite person. I'm still not. So that really got in the way of, I mean, that took a toll really on my self-esteem and like allowing myself to believe that that mattered at all. And not only that, but overcompensating for that by being a really good Mormon. And like, I was a Sunday school teacher. I went to every activity. I led the choir. Like I just wanted to be the best Mormon I could be. And that way God would see that I'm worthy even on that. And that was a huge, huge issue. And I think that kind of played into when I did find somebody, I was 29 when I got married. So it was a long time. And I spent all those years just being single. Like I didn't, I just worked and I just waited for my man to save me. And he did at 29. I met him. We got married right before my 20th birthday or right before my 30th birthday. You know, right when, when I became this like old Mormon maid at 30 years old to be cast aside into the family wards. So he saved me just in time. So we got married and a couple years later we had a couple kids, we had three kids together. 
and everything was fine until like right before my daughter was born, like right in our early years of marriage, my, my friend came out as gay and some mutual friends of ours were like, well, we can't have him over anymore because he's going to chase away the spirit. And I was just like, but he was gay last week and we were all had dinner together. This is, it was such a weird contrast to this like loving, accepting, we love our friend. Now we can't have him over. He's going to chase the spirit away. So that kind of, I, I put it on the shelf like always. And I remember having conversations with him and feeling so conflicted. And I felt like, what am I going to do when Jesus says, okay, are you going to pick Trent or are you going to pick your church? Are you going to pick Jesus or are you going to pick Trent? What, what are you going to do? Like that was the only option. And it was like mortifying to me. And I still remember feeling like, I hope that, I hope Jesus doesn't come and make me choose that. Cause I just, I can't do that. And I would have to pick Jesus. I know that I would have to pick Jesus. And that crushed me. And then I think I just kind of cast it aside and just hoped that I would be able to make it work like everything. And things started really falling apart when we lived in Kansas City at the time for most of our marriage. But in 2018, my then husband got a job in Fort Collins, Colorado. So we moved our family to Fort Collins. And right before then, I was leaving my childhood home. I was like, I pretty much grew up there. And a couple of my friends were like, we should get tattoos. Like we should get like tattoos to, you know, be like, connect us in some way. And I was like, oh, I can't do that. I'm Mormon. I feel like I can't do that. And they know my religion. Um, but then I started looking into why there was like such a taboo on tattoos in the church. And a lot of it came from like Kinkley's talks and the frustrations of youth pamphlet. And the more I read the verbiage in those, in that literacy, the, the uh, literature, not literacy, literature, the more that I felt like this feels so manipulative and so controlling. You're going to regret this. It's going to be expensive to remove. Nobody likes the tattoos that they end up with. Just all of this very, very manipulative language. And this was right after President Nelson like decided that Mormon was a, a win for Satan. So those things together, and I started questioning, like, right, like it's, and those things together kind of made me look at the prophets in a very different way. Because the conclusion that I came to when I was looking into tattoos and why tattoos were not okay was it was Hinckley's opinion. And Gordon Hinckley didn't think that that more than one piercing was okay or tattoos were okay or you know, whatever. The, the laundry list of things that he decided was not moral. And so I ended up getting the tattoo because I really felt like God was telling me that it was fine. God was like, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed because I was like, this is something that's against what the prophet is telling me. What am I going to do? What, like, what am I going to do? If I'm going against the prophets, I'm, well, my recommend is gone. I might as well tear it up. Like it's just, it was just so, and it felt so frivolous to me logically, but it was such an important thing to me to commemorate these, this friendship that I had with these people. Anyway, so I ended up getting the tattoo and I remember going to church. It was like the day before mother's day. And I remember going to church in this ward that I had gone to for a while. And I remember that the bishop gave me the side eye all Sunday. Like he and I were friendly. He's younger than me. I mean, like we were pals and then suddenly it was, and then he made some like off, not off color, but it was just kind of a, like a definite dig into people with tattoos, like in my, like when I was standing right there and I knew that he was like angry with me and I felt awful. I, but I loved my tattoo. So anyway, uh, we moved to Colorado and then once I kind of identified this, Hinkley was teaching his opinion, not fact. 
Nelson's teaching his opinion, not fact, uh, not from God. Once that starts falling apart, everything falls apart. Like once this church that's built on the truthfulness of the prophets lead it, everything fell apart. And I didn't dig deep into the history. I felt like the history was, uh, everyone's got a messy history. Every organization, every religion, everyone has a rough start. So we're just going to forgive that. It's it's fine. And then I started listening to some podcasts, um, Lindsay Hansenbard, uh, her podcast on polygamy was amazing. And that's what got me into digging a little bit deeper into the history. But my exit was so much more emotional. It just started feeling very wrong. And I remember talking to my then husband about like, my friend, Jessica is Catholic. And I don't think anyone is closer to God or feels the spirit more than her. But by our religious standards, she doesn't have the spirit with her. So what am I supposed to like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, how do I explain that to myself, to my kids, like that she's not inspired, but I am, it does. It didn't make sense. And he was no help. He was, I think he was really, really shocked. No one thought that I would leave ever. Like nobody. I was the most Molly of Molly Mormons. Like it was, I was just really, really in. So yeah, after we, after we moved to Colorado, it's a little bit more of a liberal state than this very conservative Kansas I grew up in. and. So I showed up with a tattoo at a church and there are other tattooed Mormons. And I was like, okay, like I can make this work. I can make this work, but I couldn't make it work. I was what they call PMO. So like physically and mentally out for probably a year where I was going to church and I couldn't like, I just started getting harder and harder to be there. So, but I was going anyway, because my husband and I were like, my husband was very much in and we were going to raise our kids in the church and, I was going to have to figure out what I was doing. And then in 2019, a week before my birthday, and my then husband was like, this is, I'm just not happy. And I think me leaving the church was kind of a last straw. I think I had a lot of issues. I had a lot of questions he didn't answer. And I think that was hard for him. And he's a very good man. He's a good guy. Very Mormon, but very good guy. So anyway, then I, 2020, we separated. And I stopped going to church. Like that was the, that was when I decided it was just wasn't worth it anymore to go. So he took the kids to church and I had a free second Saturday and it was great. We got divorced in 2020. Don't do that. Don't, if you're going to get divorced, don't do it during a pandemic. I, I just think that's a really, really terrible decision. If I could give anyone a piece of advice, don't become a single mom in the same year as a pandemic. That's a terrible idea. But that was my 2020. I got divorced that year and we were still living together until May. And then in May, and I was still trying to like come into this like faith crisis or coming, come, trying to come out of this faith crisis. And I had Marco Polo groups with a group of women who were instrumental in my being able to process things and talk things out and ask questions and, and get permission to leave or stay or whatever I felt was the right decision. So yeah, we got divorced in April. The divorce was final and I moved out as a single mom in May and it was the hardest year of my life and I'm still trying to survive from it. But the coolest thing to me is that like, I've never, I, I have since I identify more as agnostic and I just couldn't believe in like the God of Mormonism or a God at all. And whether or not that changes, I don't know, but, but I am, um, I never once felt, I mean, it was the most isolated I've ever felt, but I never once felt like I wish I could reach out to God. Because I feel like I knew what would happen if I reached out to God and nothing would change. And I would have a temporary feeling of maybe comfort, maybe 
but it, it would not have changed my circumstances. And I found an incredible amount of empowerment being able to survive on my own and do the things that I need to on my own and find that inspiration inside of me instead of outside from God, who was not telling me where to go or what to do like, for a long time. I felt like he was quiet. So I, that's kind of the long part of it. I think that there's a lot to it. I think there's a lot to every faith crisis, but that's kind of that in a nutshell. Anything else you want to share? Um, just, I think the part that I skipped over was this, I wasn't very factual about things. It was very emotion based for me, but it wasn't like, Oh, I've decided this doesn't feel right. So I'm going to leave. It very much was, um, I joined a couple of Facebook groups. One that was, uh, four people in a faith crisis who weren't planning on going back. And one whose entire purpose of the group was to answer hard questions and lead people back to the church. And I found myself like leaning more and more towards these people who I felt knew me or, or knew what I was going through. And I, the more that I like participated in both groups and kind of felt out both of those groups, the more I knew that I didn't want to go back. Like I didn't, I was hoping I didn't find an answer <laughs> to, to yes, that to go back to the church. Was true. Like I knew that I couldn't go back after, after even doing some deep diving even briefly, I knew that I couldn't go back and I didn't want to go back. And I had to, I, I found through an, another Facebook group, actually Facebook. So great support groups all over the place. I found a group of women, like I said earlier, who were just so they were going through the same thing I was, or had gone through it already. They're still, I'm so close to them. They're still are so important to me. And we talked for hours and hours and hours through Marco Polo every single day. and talked through issues and how we felt. And I remember talking one day and I'm just like, I'm just going to stay and make it work. I'm going to stay and make it work. And one of the girls on there said, you know, if you want to stay and make it work, stay and make it work. And if you don't want to make it work, that's okay too. Like it is okay. Whatever you decide is okay. And I remember feeling like this was the most terrifying moment of my life, not having a specific direction or like having to really honestly find where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do instead of what is the prophet saying? What do my parents think? What are my friends doing? I wasn't looking at any of that. This friend gave me permission to stay or go if I wanted to stay or go. And that was such a vital like, turning point for me that I was like, oh yeah, this is like, I'm in charge. I'm in charge now. And that was incredible. That was an incredible moment for me. So how long were you in a mixed faith marriage? Probably two years, because I think my the questions really started to ramp up in about 2017, and maybe three years because we divorced in 2020. But I was still going, and that was my commitment. I was just gonna like, I was just gonna keep asking questions in these groups, and I knew that I couldn't go to my husband about it. Like he was not okay with it. It was a struggle, and I there was also this question of our kids. They were really young when we separated. My oldest was let's see, my youngest was seven months. And our middle son must have been three, three and a half. And then our oldest was five and a half, seven and a half or six. So they were all really little and they didn't have to do this. Like, why aren't we going to primary? Why aren't we going to church? Like why there wasn't a lot of that, but I was fortunate that they were young enough. I think that I didn't instill a lot of Mormon values that I needed to then like deprogram later on in their lives. So I was glad that they were younger, but also I didn't want to confuse them. And how was I going to raise good kids outside of the church? How was, gonna, how was I going to do that? 
Because that's another question you always ask when you leave Mormonism is, how am I going to give any kind of moral compass to my children without the fear of God? Like, how are we going to do that? And again, I was, I am really lucky in that this man that I married and then divorced is very committed to the kids, very committed to doing the best thing for the children. And we've had some like scuffles along the way, but we worked together to compromise and do the best thing that we could for the kids. And a lot of that was presenting things as options instead of this is fact and this is doctrine. This is what dad believes. This is what mom believes. And my, my oldest is turning, our oldest is turning eight this year. So it's going into that battleground is a little bit hard, but I do have to give him a lot of credit. He's still in the same place mentally of let's let her decide. Let's give her information. And I really appreciate that a lot from him. So that was going to be my next question. He's pretty good about letting your kids decide what they want to do then? Yeah, he is. I think there's also this like undercurrent of programming in the church. So there's a couple of questions that he never really asked himself. I found out that the missionaries were coming over, like the kids go to to his house every Sunday and spend Sundays with dad and Saturdays with mom. And so I found out that he was he was having the missionaries over every Sunday. And that was something that like, we didn't go over, we didn't talk about, but it was completely innocuous to him. Like he was like, Oh, this is fine. Like, this is normal. This is great. This is absolutely inconsequential. It's fine. But for me, that was like, if I were to bring over, I don't know, or if I was to bring over a friend and just say, let's talk about how no church is true. And that's factual. Or, you know, if the situation were reversed, I think he probably would be pretty angry with me if I brought somebody over to teach her or teach them about some other religious practice. And so we had to have a talk about it and, and had to have a discussion about how that it felt really underhanded and to do that kind of behind my back. And I do give him credit. I do think that he just kind of did it because that's what he was supposed to do. And we had a discussion also about not having this early programming happened about baptism. I don't want the bishop to have a bishop's interview about baptism. I don't want the primary presidency to talk about when she's getting baptized because this is such a nuanced situation. This is such a, this is such a different situation where we're not just assuming she's getting baptized. We're going to let her decide. And when we ask her if she wants to get baptized, she's like, yeah, I love the water. I love to swim. And like, this is the mind of a seven and a half year old who does not know what she's getting into. And he can see that. And I can see that. And so I think, that's where we're trying to go with this, but it's been, it was hard for me not to just get on the phone and be like, what are you doing? What are you doing? But totally. So now do you have any tips for people who are looking to leave an overbearing religion? I think the most important thing to me is to, to, for me and my whole journey was to just be as true and honest to yourself as possible. And sometimes that means deconstructing everything that you knew before and building yourself back up from the ground up. And that is emotional and difficult find people who will support you. I, it was important to me to find people who weren't really, really angry at the church. I think an angry stage is important for a lot of people, but I didn't want to be influenced that way. I didn't want to feel pressured by the people who were just really pissed at the church I wanted to find people who are just going to be open to talking to me. And that was really important to me to, to have just people who are like, yeah, we understand we've been there. Absolutely. And we will respect you if you stay or whatever you want to do. But I think seeking support and, and our community is the, the most important thing. 
and trust yourself and trust how you feel. That's really hard too. Well, awesome. Is there anything else you want to share before we go? I think one thing I wanted to mention too is that I think it's really important also to face the reality that there's a lot of, you're going to lose credibility. You're going to lose friends. The minute you leave the church and live more authentically, like people are going to leave your side. People who you thought would never abandon you will abandon you because that's what they're taught to do. And it's not necessarily 100% their fault. This is something that they've been taught to do. And my family, it's been mixed results in my family, (laughs) but my like living authentically and living as true to myself as I possibly can is more important than the things that I've lost. But the things that I've lost is it's still hard. It's still hard to know that even if you say it in the most peaceful of ways, any kind of criticism against the church from an apostate is going to be met with a heavy amount of criticism and skepticism. And that's okay. That is okay. As long as you feel um, empowered and as much in your truth as possible. I think that's number one, but also just be prepared. Anybody who's out there listening and struggling and going through a faith crisis, you will lose friends. You will lose credibility. That's part of the journey, but it's worth it. Well, thank you for coming on. It's great having you on today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. Thanks again for joining us today. As always, I want to give special thanks to our sponsor and friend, Corporate Design Solutions, who has generously made it possible for this podcast to be a reality. If anyone is looking for help protecting their digital info, please email Michael at helpdesk at corpdesignsolutions.com.